realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. So let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in honor beside God's throne. Well, I want to welcome everybody here today and those joining us on TV and also on the stream. We're glad that you're a part of the Sagebrush family as well. We are finishing our series today called The Hall of Faith. We're going to do a recap of everywhere we've been the past uh, few weeks of uh, the different heroes of the faith who we have uh, studied. And uh, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12. And then next week, we're going to start a brand new series called Mixtape, where we're going to talk about relationships and the kind of relationships that God wants us to have. But as you just saw, we are in a race, right? And the race is the race of our life. And we're supposed to run the race in such a way as to win the prize. So my question to you is, is how are you running? How are you doing so far in the race? Let, let me tell you a story about a guy who ran, uh, ran with everything that he had because he ran for his very life. His name was John Coulter. He hung around with a guy by the name of John Potts. John Potts, you might recognize that name. He was part of the Lewis and Clark expedition, so you get an idea of the time frame here. Uh, John Colton, this was a story that was told over and over again in the Old West around campfires thousands and thousands of times. John Coulter and John Potts one day was on a canoe, and they were heading down a Montana river, and it had a narrowing in the river, and they heard a sound over to the left and then over to the right. Now, this got their attention really quickly, and their worst fears were realized when out of the tree line came Blackfeet Indians on both sides with their bows and arrows ready to do damage. Well, Coulter knew that there was no way that they could possibly get away from, from the Blackfeet Indians, and so he pulled his canoe up to the side of the boat. Well, immediately, a warrior came over and tried to wrestle the gun away from Coulter. Coulter wrestled the gun back and then threw it over to Potts. Potts had seen enough. He jumped back on the canoe, thought, I'm going to make a break for it. He gets in his canoe, starts to take off. Coulter screams, no, don't do it. But it was too late. The barrage of arrows began to pelt down on the canoe and upon Potts, and he was dead in a matter of seconds. Well, Coulter is stripped naked on the side of the riverbank, and they decide to bring him before their chief. Now, the chief wants to make sport of Coulter, so we ask him a question. He said, are you a fast runner? Do you run like a deer? And Coulter said, no, 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 I do not run like a deer. I run more like a turtle. 
But that was an absolute lie. This guy was fast as grease lightning. So the, the Indian chief brought him out to this big prairie area where you could just see for miles all around. He had his warriors stand behind one line. And then about 300 yards ahead, he gave Coulter a 300-yard head start. Now, he, he didn't have any weapons, didn't have any knives, didn't have any clothes on, didn't have any shoes on his feet. And the chief said, go, and Coulter did. He shot out as fast as he possibly could. Well, he's running with everything he's got. And the field that he's running in has got prickly pears. It's got sagebrush. His feet are just being cut to shreds. But he doesn't care because he's running for his very life. He gets a mile down the way. He gets two miles down the way. And he can still hear the warriors coming up behind him. He gets three miles out of the way. He gets four miles. And then he looks in the distance and he sees a tree line. And he thinks to himself, if I can just make it to the tree line, maybe there's a bend in the river and they won't know which direction I go. So he's running with everything he's got. He glances back and now there's just a handful of warriors that are still in pursuit, that are still in the chase. He gets to mile number five, gets to mile number six. He breaks through the tree line, and sure enough, it's exactly what he thought. Now he's got some trees to block the, the view of where the warriors are at, and he also has this river. Now, which direction should he go? Should he continue to run down the river's edge, or should he jump into the river waters? Well, he sees a, someone that made a makeshift uh, uh, kind of raft out, out of driftwood. He thought, I'll hide under the raft. So he slows way down. He gets in the water as still as he possibly can because he doesn't want any ripples to happen. Gets himself under this makeshift raft, and he's able to breathe between two logs just barely above the surface of the water. Did I fail to mention this was the middle of winter? And the water was freezing cold. He could see through the crack of the driftwood the warriors walking back and forth up and down that tree line looking for him. They didn't know where he had gone to. Finally, they gave up their chase. They stopped looking for him as the sun went down. But Coulter was too nervous about getting out from under that raft thinking that there still might be a warrior or two in the tree line waiting for him to come out. So about 2 o'clock in the morning, after he'd swam a couple of miles under that raft, with everything that he had, hypothermia almost taking his life, he gets himself up onto the shore. Now, again, he doesn't have any weapons, doesn't have any gun, doesn't have any clothing, doesn't have any shoes. He's freezing to death. He doesn't have any food. And he knows he's got to get to safety. Problem is, his safety is 150 miles away at the Bighorn. Now, here's the amazing part of the story. Over the course of the next seven days, this guy runs, hides, and goes 150 miles in seven days and walks into the compound of the bighorn naked and bleeding and completely emaciated. There was just no quit in John Coulter. Friends, listen to me. The kind of people that please God are the people who have no quit in them. When your marriage goes through a rough patch, you endure. You do the hard work. You fight for your relationship. You don't, you don't fight against it. You, you sign up for the re-engage class that we have here at Sagebrush so your marriage can be rescued. You, you buy yourself a good Christian marriage book where you can get some principles and you can apply God's word to your relationship, to your marriage. You start praying together as a couple. You start reading God's word together as a couple. You go see a Christian counselor so you can work through the issues that you have. But you fight. You run the race. You don't quit. When, when there's more month than there is money, your first thought isn't, I'm going to stop tithing. 
It's God, I'm going to continue to trust God because I know that he'll be faithful in the midst of all this. That he can do exceedingly abundantly more than anything I've ever dreamed or imagined. You just don't quit. When there's a pandemic that affects every aspect of your life, you keep showing up. You keep tuning in. You keep hope alive wherever you go. You be a light for Jesus Christ in a dark, dark world. And you realize that the church is not some building, that the church is the people, and you can't stop the church because the church just won't quit. Right? No matter what. No matter what. That, that dream that you have inside of you, guess what? God wants to see that dream become a reality. That goal that you set on the calendar that you think is too high and too far and too great for you to ever accomplish, God wants to give you the strength and give you the wisdom to see that goal actually become a reality. The life that you want to live, the, the, the kind of person that you want to be, the marriage that you want to have, all that's possible if you keep your eyes on Jesus and you run the race with perseverance and you finish strong. Friends, what in the world does it look like to finish strong? Well, finishing strong means that you end up at the end of your life more in love with Jesus than you've ever been before. That you truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And every day, when, every night when you put your head on your pillow at night, you just say, you know what? I had a good day because I love Jesus a little bit more and I love my fellow man a little bit more than I do right now. That's what it looks like to finish strong. You know what it looks like to finish strong? It's that you're more in love with your spouse on the day that you die, than the day that you said, I do. Do you remember that day? She came in, she looked good, she never looked that good before in her life, never looked that good ever again, right? She came in, she walked down that aisle, and you were so excited, you said, I do, she said, I do. You know what the goal is? Is that 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 years later, you're more in love with each other than you were when you first started out. That's what it means to finish strong. To finish strong means you got some scars, because you've taken some hits for the kingdom of God and for the things of God. It means that you remain faithful to the one who has always been faithful to you. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore. Now, whenever you read the word therefore, you got to ask yourself the question, what's it there for? And what it's there for is to remind you of what happened in the chapter before. And what's the chapter before? It's God's hall of faith. It's all these godly men and women that we've been studying these past few weeks. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's the heroes of our faith, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God set this race before you. The race is your life. You got one shot at it. And so your goal, my goal, is to run it with everything we've got. To run it in such a way that we look back upon when we cross the tape that we don't have so many regrets. I, I love the metaphor here, right? Can you imagine yourself in this big stadium and the place is filled? There's not a single seat that's not occupied by one of the heroes of our faith and they're cheering us on and here you are running in front of all those who have gone on before you. Here's my question. If they came out of the stands and did a lap with you, what would they say to you? 
Can you imagine how cool that would be? Let's say, let's say Noah comes out from the stands and says, hey, I'll do a lap with you. You're like, that's awesome, Noah. I'd love to do a lap with you. Now, you know about Noah, right? Noah was really one in a million, wasn't he? In a day and age where every thought and inclination of man was on evil all the time, Noah lived his life for an audience of one. And so God came to him. What did he say? He said, listen, I, I'm grieved. I'm saddened that I've made mankind. They've become so evil. They've become so wicked. I'm going to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. But Noah, you have been found in favor of me. I, you are a righteous person. Now, I want you to build an ark for me. And we know it took 120 years for him to build the ark. And we know that he was laughed at and he was made fun of and he was ridiculed. And I'm sure there were days he looked out his back window and said, I don't want to work on that ark today. But day after day, month after month, year after year, he just kept putting one board after another on there, nailing one nail after another after another. There just wasn't any quit in him. So Noah comes running out. What, what, what would he say to us? I think he'd run next to us and he'd say, listen, you don't think you can make a difference with your one life. But you can. You, you sell yourself short. You make all kinds of reasons and all kinds of excuses as to why God can't use you in the generation that you find yourself in. But you can be that one in a million. And God can call you out to do something significant for him. But you got to keep showing up. you got to keep nailing those nails into those boards. you got to keep doing the things that God wants you to do today. And if you do that, you can make a difference with your one life. You can make a difference in your marriage. You can make a difference with your kids. You can leave a legacy behind that they want to follow. You can make a difference at your job. You can make a difference with every single person that God puts in your view. You can be an influencer for the things of God and for the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that be cool to hear something from Noah? So he heads back to the stands, and guess who comes out next is Abraham, the father of our faith. What do you think Abraham would say to you right off the bat? I think it'd say, listen, don't listen to your wife when she tells you to sleep with her maid, okay? That's not going to go well for you, okay? Don't do that. Don't do that at all. What would he say to us? I think he'd say every sacrifice is worth it. God asked me to sacrifice the most precious thing in my life. And I was willing because God's the treasure. I think he'd be running that lap saying there's going to be times God's going to ask you to sacrifice for him. Sacrifice your time, sacrifice energy, sacrifice effort. He's going to ask you to make sacrifices for the King of kings and for the Lord of lords. Do it by all means. Because he will do infinitely, exceedingly, abundantly more than anything you've ever dreamed or imagined. There's no sacrifice that's not worth it for the King of kings and for the Lord of lords. He heads back to the stands. Next person comes out is Joseph. Joseph says, listen, I know that there are times in your life when you feel like nothing in your world makes any sense. God gave me a dream when I was a kid, and I thought I was going to be a great ruler one day. But my brothers, out of jealousy, sold me into slavery, and I get sold to a man named Potiphar, and he's got a wife, and she, she lies about me and says that I've raped her. I'm thrown in jail for a crime that I, I didn't commit. Nobody believed me. And I go into a prison cell, and, and I'm wasting all of these years, and none of it makes any sense to me. Joseph looks at him and says, there's going to be dark times that come in your life. Things aren't always going to work out the way that you hoped that they would. But I can promise you this, God will be with you. 
God will never leave you and God will never forsake you. And God's not doing something to you in the midst of those dark times. God's doing something in you and through you. He's getting you prepared for what he has ahead for you. Because every time I was in Potiphar's house and every time I was in that prison, God was molding me and shaping me and getting me ready for such a time as this. So don't grow weary. Don't grow faint. But keep your eyes upon the Lord. He's doing something in your life. And even though you can't see it, I'm telling you, he's going to use every bit of pain and every bit of confusion to help somebody else along the way. Joseph heads back to the stands. This is pretty cool, isn't it? Next up is Moses. What in the world would Moses say to us? I think Moses would say, you know what? I made every excuse. God came to me in a burning bush, and I told him all the reasons why he couldn't do it. I was washed up. I had already messed up. I was too far gone. There was no way that God could ever use somebody like me. And so I gave him one excuse and one reason after another, after another, after another, why he needed to find somebody else to do what he needed to do. You ever tried to tell God no? <laughs> it never works out so well. And so what happened is I made myself available. I reluctantly said yes. And I think Moses would look at you and say, listen, stop making excuses and reluctantly say yes. Because your availability is more important to God than, than your ability. Make yourself available. Tell God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Here is my life. You use it any way you see fit. And I think Moses would look at us and say, if you do this, you'll see the Red Sea part in your life. You'll go on the adventure unlike anything you've ever experienced before, and you will see God do one miracle after the other, after the other, after the other. Oh, friends, they just keep coming down. Joshua comes out and says, you keep trusting God even when it doesn't make any sense, even when you appear to look foolish. Because I can tell you the seventh time around, blowing the trumpets and shouting our little heads off, we look like fools. But in looking like a fool, the walls came down. Gideon comes running out there and says, God sees things in you you don't see in yourself. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He believes in you. And Samson comes running out. Samson puts his arm around you and says, look at me. I wasted my whole life. I didn't take my relationship with God seriously. I didn't take my vow to God seriously. I, I let my, my weaknesses get the best of me. It cost me my strength. It cost me my eyesight. I was my own worst enemy. I don't want you to follow in my footsteps. I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I made. You... You keep your focus on your weakness because Satan is watching you and he's going to attack you at your weakest point again and again and again and again and he wants to make you play the part of the fool. So don't you give in to it. You take your relationship with God seriously. You take accountability seriously and you run the race that God has set before you to run. Next up's King David. King David comes down and says, hey, do you mind if I run a lap with you? And you say, how about two? David says, nobody believed in me. My dad didn't see anything worthy of me being a king. He didn't even line me up when Samuel came by to pick a king. My brothers, they just saw me as a nuisance. And Saul, when I told him I would take on the giant Goliath, he saw me nothing more than a shepherd boy, not a mighty warrior. They didn't understand that the battle belongs to the Lord. There will be people that will try to limit you. 
They'll say all kinds of evil against you. They'll try to steal your dream. They'll try to steal your heart. They'll try to steal your passion. They'll try to make you less than. And if you listen to their words and you let them rattle around your brain over and over again, you'll start believing them. So you take that thought captive and you make it obedient to Jesus. And you say, I'm not going to focus on that lie. I'm going to focus on the truth of God's word. For I am more than a conqueror because of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing is impossible with God. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Let me remind you of John chapter 14, verse 12. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me, this is Jesus speaking, will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. There is a great cloud of witnesses. And they had their time. And this is your time. And I think they would all cry out to you, throw off the sin that so easily hinders you from running the race. Did you know in the ancient Olympics, I found this to be quite disturbing, they ran naked. Did you know that? I'm so glad they don't do that anymore. You know, the Olympics would have had a weird twist to it if everybody would have out there naked, don't you think? They're nasty, I tell you what. In the old days when they had the Olympics, they wouldn't allow a woman to come in. But you've got to ask yourself, what man wants to go in there and see that, you know? But that's what they would do. The reason they ran naked was they didn't want anything to hinder them. They didn't want anything to slow them down. So they wore nothing at all to run the race as hard and as strong as they could. Well, I've asked Luke to come out. Luke, come on out. Get on the treadmill for me, would you? Luke's going to represent the likes of you and me. And uh, he's going to run the treadmill. We're going to talk about the sin that so easily messes us up. I've been waiting for this all week, okay? Now, isn't Luke a good-looking guy? He looks like a Barbie Ken doll, doesn't he? I tell you what. And the good news for you and me is that our Barbie Ken doll represents us. So don't you already feel better about yourself? But we're running the race, and we're running the race in such a way as to win. But there are things that get in the way, right? And these things that get in our way, we have to get rid of these things if we're going to run the race with endurance and perseverance with everything. How about I take his legs out? Should I take his legs out? Just messing around. Oh, I got you on that one. Ho! Pride, that'll do it to you. Lust, alcohol, drugs, the list goes on and on and on. Thank you, Luke. Give him a round of applause. He did good, didn't he? So I got to ask you a question. What's slowing you up? What's the sin in your life that you're acting like it's not that big of a deal, but it's a big deal and it's messing you up? It's messing up your life. Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it an attitude? Is it your mouth? Is it an ungodly relationship? Is it the bottle? A pill bottle? Alcohol? Some addiction? Because here's what I know to be true. Not everybody runs the race in such a way as to win the prize. There's a lot of people... They're running the race. They're not running it to win. They're running it to survive. 
And barely, might I say, because they're carrying their sin along with them along the way. They are allowing these things to weigh them down. There's a woman who used to be very committed to to Jesus. And she said that she loved him with all of her heart and soul and mind and strength, but she got lonely. And she started dating a man who didn't have her same affection for Christ. And he didn't make fun of her. He just didn't encourage the relationship with Jesus. And he always found a way to find something more important to do on the weekends. And it wasn't too long she had to make a decision. See, he asked her to come live with him. So she had to make a choice. Live for the one who died on a cross and rose again from the dead. Or live for the one who says that he loves her but not enough to give her his last name. Sin slows us down from the race that God has for us. There's a young man who used to be on fire for the Lord, but his fire has gone out. He stumbled one night upon a couple of pornographic websites, and now he finds himself having to go to those sites, and he looks at those images, and he watches those movies, and he finds himself getting deeper and deeper into it. And every time he does those things, he feels shame. He feels regret. He feels remorse. He says he wants to change, but he's certain that God has given up on him. And if he ever got honest in the church, that they would reject him. And so he tries to run the race by himself, and he's so tired. He's so tired of feeling like a less than kind of person. There's a family that was once very committed to Christ. But then soccer season started. And all of a sudden it became more important to them to make sure their kid knew how to kick a ball into a soccer goal than for that child to understand how much Jesus loves them and how much Jesus wants to have a relationship with them. You can exchange that example with football. Football season started. And now our whole attitude and our mood is based upon how good our team is doing. Or in the case of the Kansas City Chiefs, how poorly they might be doing. It it could be something simple. It can be something good that we make greater than it needs to be, even greater than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves starting to be weighed down. It can be something so silly as busyness. There's an old saying that says, if Satan can't make you bad, it'll make you busy. Isn't that the truth? And so some of us, you know, it's not that we're not running the race. It's just that we're running a different race. We're, we're so busy. We're running over here and we're running over there. and we're, we're Like a chicken with their head cut off, right? But we're not busy spending time with the Lord. We're not busy in prayer. We're not busy spending, spraying the message of Jesus, inviting people to come with us to church. No, we're busy with the other stuff of this world. And it's zapping the strength of our soul, isn't it? I read this story this past week. I thought it was interesting. It says Satan called a worldwide convention, got all of his demons together, gave the following speech. He said, we can't keep the people from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. But we can do something else. We can keep them from forming an intimate relationship with Jesus. The demon shouted, how shall we do this? And Satan said, we'll keep them busy in the non-essentials of life. Tempt them to spend and spend and spend, then borrow, borrow, borrow. Convince the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to work six, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day so they can afford their lifestyles. 
Keep them from spending their time with their children. As their family fragments soon, their homes will offer no escape from the pressure of work. Overstimulate their minds so they cannot hear that still small voice of God. Entice them to keep streaming TV shows and constantly looking at their smartphones. Pound their minds with the news 24 hours a day. Boy, I wish we'd go back to 30-minute-a-day news. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their email with junk mail, sweepstakes, and every kind of promotion, making them believe they'll finally be content when they own this or they own that. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation exhausted and unprepared for the coming week. I guess they vacationed at Disneyland. And when they meet from their small groups, involve them in gossip and small talk so they leave with troubled consciences and unsettled emotion. Soon they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the American dream. Has the devil been successful at his scheme? Therefore, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We should run the race with perseverance, right? We should throw off every sin that might hinder us or stop us from being effective in the race that's been set before us. And then it says this. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do we run the race? We run it for him. So who do we fix our eyes on? The stuff of this world? No, we fix our eyes upon him. Isn't he your inspiration for running this race? He, he left his throne in heaven to come to a smelly stable. He, he left the praises of angels to hear the cursing of man. He is never sick. And now he's surrounded by sickness. He was once revered. Now he's ridiculed. He was innocent, but he took our sin and our shame. He once had everything, but now he hangs on a cross with nothing. Why'd he do it? The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the mocking the laughing, the spitting. He endured the whip. Cat of nine tails that ripped into his back and into his chest and left him with layers of flesh dangling from his body. He endured the nails in his hands and in his feet, the crown of thorns upon his head. He who knew no sin became sin. Dying on a cross for the sins of all mankind. So we got to ask ourselves the question, for what joy did he do this for? What was his motivation? What was his cause? What was his reasoning? Why did he do it? Was it to gain a crown? No, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Was it to gain glory? No. Angels in heaven worship him. Was it for authority? No. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. For what joy did he endure all that? It was for you. It was for me. John chapter 17. 
Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, so intensely sweat drops of blood are pouring down from his brow. He prays for himself, that makes sense. He prays for his disciples, that makes sense. You know the last person he prayed for before he went to the cross? He prayed for you. You're in scripture. He prayed for those who would believe in his name even though they never had seen him before. He prayed for you, that you'd be unified, that you'd be strong, that you'd run the race with perseverance. So when you think about giving up, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you think about quitting, you fix your eyes upon Jesus. When you feel like you don't have another breath in your body, another ounce of strength in your soul, you fix your eyes on Jesus and you remind yourself that he didn't stop, did he? He went all the way to Golgotha. He went all the way to the cross. He didn't do anything halfway. He went all the way. And we must go all the way for him. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let me ask you a question. Who do you want to run a lap with? Because the next person out of the stands is Jesus. And what would he say to you? Some of us would not be excited to see Jesus. Because you think that Jesus came to condemn you, that he came to slam you, that he would tell you what a disappointment you are, how you've messed up over here and you've sidetracked yourself over there. Oh, you don't understand who Jesus is. John chapter 3, verse 17, son of man didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I think he would look you in the eye and he said, hey, listen, I created you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. I have a plan and a purpose for your life that's far greater than anything you've ever dreamed or imagined. And I have set this race before you to run it well, but not to run it alone. From this point forward, we're running this thing together. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to warn you about impending doom and pitfalls and perils that are going to come your way. You keep your eyes on me. You stay in step with me. And we'll cross that finish line together. And then you might just hear my Father in heaven say, well done, good and faithful servant. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They had their time. This is our time. And the baton has been passed to the likes of you and me. What are we going to do with it? We're going to fumble it? Or are we going to fix our eyes on Jesus and run like John Coulter ran for his life? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is easy to get sidetracked in this race. It's easy to start coasting. It's easy to pursue lesser things and to be weighed down and bogged down by a load of sin that won't benefit us in becoming the people that you want us to become. So you tell us to fix our eyes on you. So, Lord, if there's something that we've been messing with, something that we've been justifying, something that we've been trying to tell ourselves isn't that big of a deal, and it's, it is wrecking us, it is slowing us down, God, I pray in this moment we would come to our senses and we'd repent of that, that we would throw that sin, that weight that we've been carrying at your very feet, and that you would throw that sin as far as the east is from the west, and we would finally find freedom again, freedom to run the race in such a way that you've set before us to run it. 
Lord, when we think about what you did for us and how you ran your race, how can we not give you our best when you gave your very best for us? Forgive us when we don't get up in the morning and run. Forgive us, Lord, when we just waste day after day after day. Use us, Lord. Use us in ways we never thought possible. Fill us with your plan and your purpose. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.